listening to the Bible 126 show. We're in session 5, chapters 11 and 12 of the book. And uh, the Torah, of course, is the most venerated portion of Scripture, just by way of a little review here, with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus being the book of the beginnings, the birth of the nation, the law given in Leviticus, and then they blow it. They fail. And so Numbers has the wilderness wanderings. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the five books of Moses. It really is the book of relationships. It's actually Moses' sermons before he just, at the very end of his days, he's going to review the laws. But it's interesting, the general background, we had, we had the redemption of the nation in Exodus chapters 1 through 19. And from Exodus 20 through Numbers 10, we had the law or instructions for worship. And uh, then, in, uh, uh, then, of course, they, they blew it. They had their opportunity to go in the land and they didn't have the faith to do that, so they spent 38 years taking an 11-day journey, and uh, from Numbers 10 through Numbers 22, and then the conquests east of the Jordan, the two, the two kings that uh, 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 Sihon and Og were uh, defeated on the east side of the Jordan with Moses present and so forth, uh, from Numbers 22 to 36. But Deuteronomy then reviews all this. Moses in his sermons are going to review all this. And so it'll be, in effect, a recap of that history through Moses' eyes. And the basic message, by the way, is that God has not changed since then, and man has not changed. You're going to watch a lot of issues here. God's going to reveal himself. God has not changed. We need to recognize that. Romans 15.4 says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Well, not only has God not changed, the disturbing thing also is that man hasn't changed. Our, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the stiff-necked people called Israel, and if we look carefully and we understand it, we begin to realize there go ourselves. We show no more uh, uh, tenacity and, and faithfulness than they do, and we have a lot less excuse because Christ has come and so forth. So we have some bitter lessons to learn here as we go. The basic message of Deuteronomy is not the law. Many people figure, oh, it's more the law. No, it, it isn't. It's going to review the law. basic message is how God loves, love of God, and what our obligation should be in response to that. Deuteronomy is quoted over 200 times in the New Testament. Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy more often than any other book in the Bible. The three temptations of Christ, so famous in Mark, uh, in uh, uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, is uh, he meets each one by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. So it's not do's and don'ts, and it's not legalism. It can be mistaken for that if it's not read with insight. It's about relationship, the relationship of a loving God and his called people. Jesus fulfills all of this, and we won't go through all of that here. We'll do it as we go. But clearly, Jesus expressly, specifically, had the mission of fulfilling the law for us. Now, the outline is pretty straightforward of the book. It's really just a group of sermons. There are four, ser uh, three sermons and then uh, some preparations for continuity. Three major sermons. Moses, from uh, in chapter 1 through 4, we had that before. We're in the middle of Moses' second sermon in the series we're doing tonight. 
And his third sermon will start about chapter 29. And the last few chapters, 31 through 34, are really his death and the preparations for continuity. And, and, he, and he knows he's going to die. These are, his, in many respects, his last testament, if you will, his, his, his closing words. He was a guy that spent 40 years in preparation in Egypt, then 40 years on the backside of the desert, tending sheep and what have you until he saw the burning bush and all of that. Then the exodus took place, and he spent 40 years with this people wandering the wilderness because of their lack of faith, waiting for that generation to die off to take the next generation in. Deuteronomy. First four verses, he recaps that failure. From chapters 5 through 11, he's going to talk about the mutual love, the love of God for his chosen people on the one hand and their obligations in response to that on the other. And chapters 12 through 20 will detail the obligations of a God-related people. What does that really mean? If you have a special relationship with God, what does that imply in terms of your obligations? What are your alternatives? That will be dealt with in chapters 27 through 30, and then, of course, the arrangements of continuity at the end. Now, it's interesting that ancient treaties have a structure. They typically have a prologue. And then there's basic stipulations between the ruler and his subjects. Then those stipulations are detailed. Then there's a document clause, some blessings and cursings if you do or you don't do things, a recapitulation. What's interesting about this basic structure, they find this structure in ancient documents of the Mosaic period and earlier. And it's interesting that the book of Deuteronomy follows that structure. There's a prologue from chapters 1 through 3. The basic stipulations are 5 through 11, and then uh, the detailed stipulations from 12 through 26, and on it goes, and it's, it follows the same pattern. So we saw the prologue in our first session. We went through chapters 5 through 10 in the previous session, and we're now going through 11 through uh, 12 uh, uh, in this session and 13 14 in the following session. So Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. You know, remember in chapter 6 we encountered the Shema. Clearly the, piece, the, the, the portion of scripture that's probably more replicated throughout the world than any other passage in the Bible. Why? Because it's in the mezuzahs on the doorpost, every doorpost, virtually every doorpost of uh, the Jewish community. You go to a government building, even inside the doors. On the right-hand side, you'll find the little mezuzah. And what's in most of those, almost all of them, is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and so on. And uh, that echoes all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. And here uh, Moses is expanding that and detailing some of the stipulations. None of this will be new information if you have Exodus and Numbers freshly in mind. Anyway, therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments. And we could spend a lot of time splitting hairs as to what's the difference between his statutes, his judgments, and commandments. And there are subtle differences, but basically his, his uh, expressions of doctrine in whatever form, whether they're formal commandments, whether they're laws as such, or just judgments that have, uh, have a precedent. And know ye this day, for I speak not with your children which ye have not known, and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness is mighty, his hand and his uh, stretched out arm, and his miracles and his acts, 
which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt and to all his land, and what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses and to their chariots, and how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord hath destroyed them unto this day. You know, it's interesting. Walter Martin always used to get a big kick out of these people that have all these theories, secular, that, that, that well, uh, the reason they could, Israel could cross the, the uh, Red Sea on dry land because there was a wind and it's only about three feet of water anyway and so forth. And that's always amusing because that, they're calling for even greater miracle, that the entire Egyptian army would drown in three feet of water. That's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. And uh, what's really clear, of course, if you read the text, is God really set that up so it has no explanation except by the supernatural intervention by the Almighty God on behalf of his people as he promised to do. And it's interesting how throughout the Bible, in many very strange contexts sometimes, God will point to that event as a demonstration of of who he is. Now, if it had a very convenient, easy way to explain it by some natural terms, as Vilikovsky and others have tried to do, uh, it wouldn't have that impact. It's interesting, God points to that as a demonstration, not just of his power, but of his commitment to the covenant people called Israel. Obviously, because they've been wandering around in the wilderness for 38 years, and specifically with the purpose of having that earlier generation that failed to act at Kadesh Barnea die off, with the exception of two guys, Joshua and Caleb, all the rest died off and let their children come up. They said they were all upset, and there's giants in the land and all that, and indeed there were. And uh, you just brought us here to kill our kids. And God says, no, no, you got it backwards. You're going to die off. Your kids are going to go in. Basically it. And, and that's exactly what happened. And they didn't just die off naturally. We find hints in the text that God really peeled them off, uh, rather, uh, with some interventions. But in any case, that group of children then were not, you know, uh, in general, weren't necessarily uh, all uh, aware of everything. And a lot of the burden that Moses is putting on the parents is to teach them. Let them understand what really happened, what it really meant. And, uh, in fact, it's interesting to realize that many of them aren't even circumcised. One of the Joshua take, Joshua take does when Joshua takes over and they cross over the Jordan and go to Gilgal is to circumcise them. And uh, you realize that, wow, they really have, they, they really uh, have another homework. And, uh, and what he did unto you in the wilderness until he came into this place, and what he did at, uh, unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and the son of Reuben, and how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. He's speaking to the older generation, obviously, here, that's the, that uh, uh, saw some of that. But, uh, and you all remember that. Most of the people have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. They all remember Edward G. Robinson trying to get them to go back and... <laughs> Lord explained it all to them a little more clearly, and so forth. So, all those exploits, of course, are rather dramatically portrayed in the in in the Torah. So we move on, verse verse eight. Therefore, shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that ye may be strong, and go in and possess the land, whither ye go to possess it. This is one of the interesting things that Moses. God, really, but through Moses, is hammering away to go in and possess the land. This should be the call to the Christian, too. You know, most of us have no idea 
of the authorities we have. We have no idea of the gifts we have. We have no idea of the blessings we have if we're in Christ. We tiptoe and we don't realize the, 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 the degree to which God has empowered us uh, for, the, for the battle ahead. And so, but anyway, here, that ye may be strong and go in and possess the land, whither ye go to possess it. And this is a place in your notes you can put Ephesians 6 and really understand the, the book of Ephesians, but especially the sixth chapter. But anyway, Moses goes on here in verse 9, that ye may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed a land that floweth with milk and honey. There's that idiom that becomes almost a brand name of the land. And it's interesting, again and again, Moses, God of course, but then through Moses, underscores the fact he has committed to give to them and to their seed. They're, bear in mind, they're, they're wanderers. They're, they're, this is all a, a gleam on the horizon. But, uh, and a gleam, by the way, that Moses will not participate in. He's been, with, he's been at this 120 years. 40 in Egypt, 40 backside of Midian, and then 40 in the wilderness with these people. And because he wasn't fully faithful, God says, Moses, you can't go in. You can see it from the top of the hill. From Mount Mendo, you can look around. You're going to die there. Joshua will take the people in. What a blow. What a blow. What's the lesson there? Finish well. Finish well. God calls many of us at front, but finishing well is the name of the game. Verse 10, For the land, whither thou goest in to possess it, is not as the land of Egypt from whence she came out, from where thou sowest thy seed and, and uh, watereth with thy foot, as a garden of herbs, but the land where you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and drinketh water of the rain of heaven. Big difference. You see, Egypt was fruitful through the Nile, but it took a lot of work to really deal with all that. It was very fruitful. But where they're going, if they're obedient, it's going to be self-watering. There'll be rain, the rain of heaven, and uh, the whole productivity of that region. Um, will be very different than what they, they've been spending 40 years in the wilderness, which is really a desert. The Negev down there and so forth, it's, it's a desert. And uh, it's more than sand dunes. You've got some tundra and stuff, but still it's, uh, it's uh, uh, not a fruitful place. And uh, we're dealing with, uh, in effect, the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia, an area called Midian. And uh, not the Sinai Peninsula. They've spent centuries trying to look for evidence of Sinai Peninsula before they realize that Mount Sinai in Sinai Peninsula is not Mount Horeb. It's Jabal al-Laws in the northeastern, northwestern corner of Arabia. And they're finding all kinds of evidence there of, of, uh, of the cattle and the rest that were not indigenous to Arabia and so forth. There's, it's very interesting how they're discovering all that. Anyway, the point is that the, these people have been... Uh, wandering in the wilderness where God deliberately put them there so they'd be dependent on him. Not self-reliant, but dependent on him. He fed them with manna and so forth. And the whole 40-year lesson was to understand that God blesses them when they're in subjection to him and obedient to him, and he will t- he'll, he'll be their provider. But the, one of the, but the goal for them will be to get into the land of milk and honey, a land which the Lord thy God careth for, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass that if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, 
that I will give you the rain of your, your land in, due, in its due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle that thou mayest eat and be full. Very different uh, ecological environment than they have uh, uh, had in the past. Verse 16, 17. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. This is the threat that lurks on all sides. The Canaanites were notorious in their licentious idol worship and God is uh, uh, anxious for them not to fall into the Canaanite ways. So they're instructed again and again and again in many different ways to destroy all evidence of the pagan worship of the indigenous tribes that are there as they go in. And for them to have nothing to do with those people, not to intermarry with them, not to adopt any of their customs. And some of the extremes are uh, continually underscored in the Torah all the way through. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived. Boy, that is the challenge of life for all of us, not just for the Israelites. It's interesting how Satan's primary tool is deception. We talked the other session about, uh, about uh, uh, gossip and how it's the most hateful sin. It's interesting. That was the sin by which Satan started this whole mess. Yea, hath God said, and, and, uh, and, and got Eve to buy his hearsay. Take heed to yourselves. It's interesting when four disciples come to Jesus for a confidential briefing on his second coming. He opens and closes that pivotal discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. With the opening remark, see that you be not deceived. And it closes with the same admonition. How interesting it is that with all the interest in Bible prophecy, there are all kinds of strange, deviant, non-biblical doctrines that, that uh, infiltrate those studies. It's take heed to yourself that your heart be not deceived, that you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And they said, you, we don't worship other gods. Really? Anything you devote yourself to in lieu of God is a competitor to God. And that's what he's talking about here. Serve other gods and worship them. Then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Your survival, Moses is saying, depends on this. Because if you turn aside, if you start worshiping other gods, your source of blessing will be turned off. They're going to get this land under conditions of obedience. They don't own it. God owns it. His name is on it. We need to remember that as we mess around in our foreign policy regarding the Middle East. There's a piece of ground that God has put his name on. The PLO doesn't own it. The UN doesn't own it. We need to understand that. And that what's going on today is a challenge to that very ownership, if you realize that. But even Israel doesn't own it. Israel's there under, under conditions of obedience. Otherwise, the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he'll shut up the heaven that there be no rain, that the land yield not her fruit, unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord gives you. You know, one of the most interesting things to do 
is to fly in a plane over Israel. And as you, you because it's, it's not that large, you can see the Mediterranean on one side, and you can see the Jordan River, and you see this incredible land that's green, fruitful, orchards. They're the number one exporter of fruit to Europe. This little country, smaller than the state of New Jersey, it's a third the size of San Bernardino County for those Californians among us. State of Israel, the primary exporter of fruit to Europe. When you fly over this, it's interesting. You see how green it is, how productive it is. We see the Jordan River. When you look at the west, the east side of the Jordan River, it's an arid desert. It's astonishing to see the, the, the fruitfulness west of the Jordan and the relatively sparse development on the east side of the Jordan. Interesting. Lest ye perish. See, your survival Israel depends on that. Lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord give you. Moses talking to him individually and corporately. Both are true. Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. He's speaking figuratively, I believe, and yet the Jews take this very seriously. They have their phylacteries that they wrap around their forehead and on their hands when they're in worship, and, uh, uh, which has the word of God in these little leather boxes that they strap on themselves. So they bind them literally upon their hands and uh, as frontlets between your eyes. And ye shall teach them, your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down and thou risest up. This echoes, if you remember, Genesis, uh, the Deuteronomy chapter 6, when the Shema was first uttered there. Same idea, that he's holding the parents responsible. Not the Levites, not the priests, not the administrators, not day school centers, whatever. The parents are accountable to teach the children. And ye shall teach them your children. Speaking of them, when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou risest up. The whole concept here is they're continually, continually sharing, exploring, relating. And, verse 20, thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates. That's what the word masusa means. It means doorpost. The masseuse is a little, usually sometimes metal, sometimes wood, sometimes ceramic, sometimes very, very, or you can get very fancy ones. They're very ornate, little uh, things that uh, go on the doorposts. Why? That your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children, in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them, as the days of heaven upon the earth. For if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments, which I command you, to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and cleave unto him. Then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you. And ye shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. One of the things that Moses emphasized is God didn't pick them because they were strong or particularly lovable for that matter. He just chose them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and thus their descendants. And uh, uh, they weren't mighty, but they will drive out greater nations and mightier than themselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates. Oh, really? The river Euphrates? 
Yes, even of the uttermost sea shall your coast be. People say West Bank, ask them which river they had in mind. Not the Jordan is the boundary, it's the Euphrates. The Euphrates. And uh, you want to read Genesis 15, Genesis 17. The land grant of God to Israel is from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt. River Euphrates is a magical place. It's a very literal river. I usually I meant to throw in some aerial photographs of it today, so just to give it a sense of reality for us. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's in the news. It's, it uh, represents a source of water up in Turkey, and it, it, the water is, is, is more critical to the Middle East than oil. It's also something more than that. It is uh, somehow the boundary for some angels that are sealed there. The book of Revelation says that they will be released. Very strange, strange passage. Very strange, because it seems to indicate that there are geographical limits to demonic hosts of various kinds. Very strange. But let's move on. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon, as he hath said unto you. You may recall when Joshua sends the spies into uh, Jericho, that Rahab was ready for them. Because I've heard about you. In other words, the... the, the, the uh, uh, narrative, the word of, of what happened down in Egypt and crossing the Red Sea had gotten around that there were some people there in Jericho, Rahab being among them, that were terrified. They realized that God was with them. That's why she contrives to help them and lies about it, hides them, and so forth. And uh, she, of course, ultimately and get, and gets uh, taken care of because of all of that. She ends up marrying Solomon and becomes the mother of a very famous guy by the name of Boaz. So she's in the family tree of David, interestingly enough. But uh, she makes that she she highlights the fact that they knew that, that she knew that they were not going to be able to stand before the strange people that have come up out of the wilderness. For the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon, as he had said unto you. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. Two sides of the same sword, maybe, huh? A blessing if you obey my, of the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which ye have not known. So God has intending Israel to be the mechanism by which a difference between a sanctified person and the world will be discerned. Part of his intention here is for the world to recognize in the conduct and customs and, and, and life of Israel that they are distinctive. Many of the distinctives that God ordains upon them may be just for that purpose, quite arbitrary, but to set them apart from the world, to make a point. It's come to pass, when the Lord thy God hath brought thee in, uh, in unto the land whither thou goest to possess it, that thou shalt put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and a curse upon Mount Ebal. They're going to establish for a while at Shechem, 
a base. They'll have two bases before Jerusalem. They'll have Shechem and Shiloh for different periods of time. Under Joshua, they'll be at Shechem. And that's between two mountains, Mount Ebo and Mount Gerizim. And they'll read the law, and they'll, they'll read the curses from Mount Ebo and the blessings from Mount Gerizim. So they often count, call them that, just that, the Mount of Blessing, Mount of Cursing, when they read the law there in Joshua 24, I think it is. So, are they not on the other side of the Jordan, by the way where the sun goeth down, in other words, to the west, in the land of the Canaanites, which dwell in the, uh, in the, cam, uh, in the Champagne over against Gilgal, beside the plains of Moreh? For ye shall pass over the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you, and ye shall possess it and dwell therein. He's mentioning those specific places. They're over there on the other side of Jordan. It's just as he's trying to get across that God is serious. They're going to go over. They're going to succeed. They're going to uh, uh, pass over the Jordan and, and conduct these affairs on, on the west side. And ye shall observe to do all the statutes and judgments which I set before you this day, and so ends chapter 11. Okay, chapter 12. These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land, which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills, and under every green tree. So any uh, ungodly artifacts, any pagan things they find, they are to destroy. By the way, small point, but you might be interested in this, the word places there, they shall destroy all the places. The Hebrew word is megamot, which is not a big deal, except throughout the Bible... Later, in Second, King, er, Second Kings and following, they use a different word altogether, Bamot, which means the high places. Now, what's interesting is there are characters that argue that Deuteronomy is really written later on. And if you understand the Hebrew language, this is a proof that this could not have been, was not written in the 6th century B.C., but rather much, much earlier, more like uh, 1500 B.C., not 600. And uh, some of these theories that you hear by people who are proclaimed experts are manifestly wrong if you really get into the details of the Hebrew text. This isn't a big deal, and we haven't uh, spent a lot of time on this subject uh, about who really wrote the Torah, which who really wrote the books of Moses, because Jesus told us he wrote them. He quoted each one of them. So I don't waste a lot of our time on tracking down these weird theories and proving that they're wrong, because they are wrong, and they're provably wrong. It's much simpler just to recognize that Jesus authenticated the books of Moses. He said Moses wrote them. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you, have, you don't have to waste your time chasing down these rabbit trails. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you have much bigger problems than the authorship of the book of Deuteronomy, I, so, for what it's worth. Okay. But Moses goes on, and ye shall overthrow their altars, ye shall break their pillars, and burn their groves. That the groves are the Ashtaroth, these these phallic symbols that they made out of large trees. Um, burn their groves with fire, and ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. So much for multiculturalism, huh? God doesn't seem to have a place for that. God is interested in the uh, in the uh, Extolling of the living God, not these pagan notions. 
and he, and, uh, he shows he, he's, tell, he's instructing them here to be intolerant. <gasps> Indeed, you shall not do so unto the unto the Lord your God, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put His name there. Even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. One of them is Shechem in Joshua 24. We see Shechem prominently, and it's prominent in many ways in the Scripture. And Shiloh from Judges 21 through 1 Samuel 1. And so those are two two sites before Jerusalem. Obviously, uh, under David and so forth, Jerusalem will uh, become the center. But what's interesting, God will establish a center of worship. It's interesting, Jerusalem's not mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy, because that's yet future. Some people try to make the case that it was really written to, uh, because of some political issues in Jerusalem. They, they don't understand that this is, predates the whole issue of Jerusalem it's in the Torah. Um, God has centralized the worship for a, a number of reasons. One is to show that, that there is a single God, a single place of worship to emphasize His unity. Also to indicate that... Uh, uh, the, the people have a political and religious unity. Uh, and they personally need to be focused in, in unity. So, Thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, and your tithes, and heave offerings of your hand, and your vows, and your free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and your flocks. And there shall ye eat before the Lord your God, and shall rejoice in all that ye put in your hand, your hand unto ye and your households, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. What you notice is the time of offerings was a time of rejoicing. Worship was a time of rejoicing, and uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go here. But uh, ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day, after every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. In other words, it sounds strange the way it's translated here, but basically. It's not your judgment that counts. You're going to do what you're supposed to do as he instructs it. You're not going to do what, whatever you think that happens to be right in your own eyes. For ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God hath given you. So they're in an interim period. And when ye go over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you, you rest from all your enemies round about so that ye dwell in safety... Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. By the way, something else I wanted to emphasize as we go here. I want you to understand that these laws and these practices were not a condition of their being redeemed. They were already redeemed. As a nation, they were redeemed when they came out of the Exodus. This is what God's expecting them in response. Okay? They're not earning their redemption. Their redemption's already taking place. They are to manifest their faithfulness to God by their, uh, by their example that they're going to set for other nations and so on. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters, and your men servants and your maidservants, and the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. In other words, they all have that land. The Levites don't have an inheritance in land. Their inheritance is God himself. They do have 48 cities that are set aside for them. But, but I want you to notice verse 12. Deuteronomy 12, 12, easy to remember. What is the key to worship? Ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God. 
ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maid servants and so on. Rejoice. It's interesting. My wife has uh, developed, uh, written an incredible book called Private Worship, The Key to Joy. Most of us have no idea what personal private worship is. We think worship is a synonym for the music that's usually provided at a, at a fellowship or something. Um, it may be one of the mechanisms to try to worship. Worship is something very, very special, very intimate, and uh, it's something that uh, we do need to understand how to do. And it's a time. It's a key to joy. If there's no joy in your Christian walk, it uh, it may be that there's a, a worship issue. So, I encourage you to really understand that worship is not praise. It's not Thanksgiving. Those are other things. Worship is something very special, very distinctive, very unique, very critical. And uh, going on, take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. In other words, God is very specific as to how he is to be worshipped. And where are you to be worshipped? And, and for this nation to get them centralized, to get them focused, to get them de- to, to, to develop that relationship, God Himself will get, you know write down the the rules, and He Himself will designate the place. Yes, it's Shechem, then Shiloh, then Jerusalem, as, as God uh, declares. Notwithstanding, thou mayest kill and eat flesh in all thy gates, whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which He hath given thee. The unclean and the clean may eat thereof, as of the roebuck and as of the heart. Really? That's interesting. We'll come to that. We'll talk more about that in a minute. See, up till now, by the way, they weren't to kill an animal. They were to take it to the opening at the tabernacle and have it slayed. That was to get them so they would, so they, they would be, end up doing it properly. But now he's saying you can, uh, you're not saying thou mayest kill and eat the flesh in all thy gates, in your, in, at home, so to speak, whatsoever thou soul lusteth after. According to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he giveth thee, the clean and the unclean may eat thereof as of the roebuck and as of the heart. Only ye shall not eat the blood. Ye shall pour it upon the earth as water. The whole roll of blood is very specific, very definitive, and the blood is the life thereof, and so on. Thou mayest not eat within thy gates the tithe of thy corn, or of thy wine, or of thy oil, or of the firstlings of thy herds, of, the, of thy flock, nor any of the vows which thou vowest, nor thy free will offerings, nor heave offering of thine hand. But thou must eat them before the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite that is within the gates. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God in all that thou puttest thine hands into. Take heed to thyself that thou forsake not the Levite as long as as thou livest upon the earth. The Levites uh, were, were um, set aside, and they were to be supported. And when the Lord thy God shall enlarge thy border, as he hath promised thee, and thou shalt say, I will eat flesh, because thy soul longeth to eat flesh, thou mayest eat flesh whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. If the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name be too far from thee, then thou shalt kill of thy herd and of thy flock which the Lord hath given thee, as I have commanded thee, and thou shalt eat in thy gates whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Even as the roebuck of the heart is eaten, so shalt thou eat them. The unclean and the clean shall eat of them alike. Only be sure that thou eat not the blood, for the blood is the life, and thou mayest not eat the life with the flesh. 
Thou shalt not eat it, thou shalt, not, thou shalt pour it upon the earth as water. This is amplifying what went before. And thou shalt not eat it, that it may go well with thee, and that with thy children after thee, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Only thy holy things which thou hast, and thy vows, thou shalt take, and go unto the place which the Lord shall choose. And thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, upon the altar of the Lord thy God, and the blood of thy sacrifices shall be poured out upon the altar of the Lord thy God, and thou shalt eat the flesh. All this, of course, is just a recap of the details in the book of Leviticus, all the various offerings, their categories, their purposes, they're all quite distinctive, all quite different. Every one of them points to Jesus Christ. We obviously aren't going to go through all that again, you can, but you do want to study the book of Leviticus. It's probably, many scholars feel, the most important book in the Bible in the sense that it's the book, the one book, focused on holiness. We need to understand holiness. And Moses here is just recapping here. Observe and hear all these words which I command thee, that it may go well with thee, and with thy children after thee forever. When thou doest that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them and dwellest in their land, take heed to thyself, get this, that thou be not snared by following them after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so, will I do likewise. In other words, you don't copy these guys. That's one of the reasons they're destroyed. God wants them destroyed. It isn't just because they deserve it and they do. That's not the problem. The problem is he wants to make sure that they don't contaminate the, the minds, the hearts, the worship, the practices, the ceremonies of Israel. And he's very, very intent upon that. This will be a recurrent theme all the way through here. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord, which he hateth, have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. They burn their sons and daughters in the fire. You and I, you know, it, it, the, the mind probably cannot embrace the tragedy of paganism. We probably have no capacity to understand the mindless suffering, the astonishing extremes that paganism leads to. What's really amazing is when people reject the gospel of Christ, when they reject the Bible, for whatever reason, okay, what's really bizarre is what do they then take up? They go through these apologetics, well, I don't really buy it, I don't really buy it, okay, fine, they go off. Notice what they take up then, the most ridiculous, absurd belief systems you can imagine. Belief systems which have enslaved the nations that have followed them in the past. Take a look at India and see where their religion has left the common person. Take a look at the Islamic world and the darkness that they live in. Uh, and on and on. It's, it's amazing. Every abomination of the Lord, which he hateth, have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. Can you imagine parents giving their children as an offering to some you know, bronze-heated cauldron? What things soever I command you observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. And so ends this session.